Today on the podcast, I am having a conversation with Brother Rich Grenier. Brother has been at Maris 53 years. He's a former teacher, administrator, coach. He's a constant presence at Marist, and both current students and alumni are always aware of his contributions to Marist and always ask for him. He's the fabulous voice behind our outstanding prayers, both at our sporting events and our special events. And there are some other things about Brother Rich that you might not know that hopefully after listening to the podcast that you will get to know Brother Rich. So Brother Rich Grenier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mr. Dunback, and I'm glad you read that exactly as I wrote it. it <laughs> you did not nice, write it. Uh, so, I already said to Brother Rich that there is no seven-second delay on this podcast, so we have to make sure that we keep things uh, keep things moving and make sure that we're above board with everything we talk about. You're so funny that you wrote that. You didn't write it. All right, I'm excited about this conversation, Brother Rich. 53 years at Marist High School. But before we get into what you've done here at Marist, um, I want to get to a little, just to know, like, Rich, Richard the Kid, you know, a little bit. So let's right. go back in time a little bit about you. And can you tell us a little bit about maybe where you were born and a little bit about your family life? Right. Well, I was born right in the middle of World War II, 1943, in Maine, southeastern Maine. We were about nine miles from the ocean, and uh, it's a beautiful area. Although we did not live on the coast, we lived about nine miles from the coast. When I was born, my dad was on the West Coast. He had just finished basic training and uh, was on his way, supposed to be joining with his outfit. He was on his way to the Pacific somewhere. But when I was born, uh, he, he asked for about a week to two off so he could go from California to Maine to visit with me and my mom for a couple of days and then jump back on the train, rush back to California. And a very interesting thing happened. Of course, I didn't know this until I was about eight or nine until they told me. When he was visiting with me, the outfit that he was supposed to go with boarded a ship that was sunk and all killed in the Pacific. He found that out when he reported to his commanding officer when he went back to California. So I remember as a kid when he used to get ticked off at me and he wanted to reprimand me for one thing or another, I used to say, remember, I saved your ass. Oh, God. That's true. So, but that is bizarre, oh, isn't it? That is so yeah. bizarre. So, his fate was to be with you and not yeah. on that ship. So, we lived, uh, I lived in Maine until I was about 15. Um, it was a beautiful area. I enjoyed it. But now, when I was 15, Dad was able to get a great job with Raytheon Corporation. Raytheon Corporation at that time, in the late 50s, early 60s, was having tremendous success selling uh, the, Ma- the Hawk anti-missile, anti-aircraft missile to NATO countries as well as the United States government. So my dad was able to get a job. Uh, he was a supervising engineer with them for many years and we moved to Massachusetts in 1958. I hated to leave Maine, but we had no choice. You know, For work purposes, he just had to leave Maine because too many ups and downs and recessions in Maine at that time. So I, I, we moved to Massachusetts, we moved to Lawrence, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact, but I never enrolled at Central Catholic. I enrolled at, at Lawrence High School, which is about a two-mile drive from, from Central, maybe less. So my sophomore year, my three years in Massachusetts in high school were at Lawrence High School. And a lot of interesting connections at Lawrence High School as well. Um, our coach at Lawrence High School, football coach, two years in a row, won the Massachusetts State Championship. Then 
he came to Chicago and got the job at St. Rita and won more state championships with oh, St. Rita. Oh, really? Yeah. His name was uh, Buckley, Coach Buckley. Now, he was a Harvard grad, but everywhere I go, everything I do in this country, see, we have connections all over the place. Yeah, I meet people or I, or, I, or I work with some people who find themselves. It's incredible, the connections. So... That's why I lived for seven years, and then. Was that was that is that where you kind of grew your love of football? I know you're a big football fan. Yeah, like, we, through we that St. Lawrence my brothers, from my that. brothers and I have two brothers, Mike and Mark. They're both younger. Um, we were we've always been fanatic baseball fans and basketball fans and football fans, and of course Boston teams. We live and die with Boston teams. Grew up with the Boston Celtics and. Uh, my brother, to this day, knows a lot of former Celtics, and he's one of the foremost authorities on us. He's written a couple of books on the Celtics, and also he was a sports writer for many years. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, in he, Boston or around Boston he, area? He worked uh, out, right outside Boston. Uh, he worked for a couple of newspapers for many, many years. He got to be very, very great at his job. Got us received a lot of awards. I was just inducted into the Hall of Fame by one of those newspapers. Um, no, knew Tommy Heinsohn real well. No, knew Brian Kelly very well. Oh, really? Used to cover Brian Kelly's games when Brian Kelly was coaching football in high school in Massachusetts. Wow. So he's uh, probably got some stories. He should be on the oh, podcast, but he, Rich. Yeah, uh, he has. He has probably one of the top five authorities. If you want to know anything about the Celtics, their history and everything else, stats all over the place, he's probably one of the top five people in the country that can to talk to about Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. That's so Mike am, or Mark? That's Mike. Yeah, so uh, I ended up at Merrimack College for my undergraduate degree, and that's where I met Carl Yastrzemski. Carl Yastrzemski was already playing two years with the Red Sox at the time, so he enrolled at Merrimack because he couldn't stay at Notre Dame. Uh, What he had to do was go to school close to his mother, and his mother lived in North Antwerp, Mass. So what he used to do was go to school at Merrimack in the fall, because he had to make the change to spring training down in Florida come spring semester. So uh, I had, he, he was in my class, I'll never forget, the day that John Kennedy was assassinated, made uh, November 22nd, 1963. Uh, he and I and, and our whole class were in, it, this was a, one of the worst days of my life that Friday, I'll never forget, because everybody out there was a big fan of John Kennedy in those sure. days, right? Sure, So Yastrzemski was sitting here, I'm sitting here, and. Professor Tom Hogan walked in, and he had worked on the John Kennedy campaign. What was the class? It was a class in business cycles, okay. and uh, J- Tom Hogan came in, and he, and he was pale, and he said, look, you guys better leave, go to your next, go to the closest TV you can get to, or radio, because John Kennedy, a few minutes ago, was, was, was shot with the governor of Texas, Governor John Connolly. So I, I ran out, and uh, my, I had my dad's car that day. I went to the parking lot, with five or six of my friends and I opened all four doors and I put the radio on and blasted so people in the parking lot could hear. And just then at there, at two o'clock uh, Eastern time, they made the announcement John Kennedy's been pronounced dead. So uh, the following week was a miserable week for, I mean, my family, we were all big John Kennedy fans, but I'll never forget that, that day. But I also will never forget what a nice guy uh, Talia Stremsky was. He was not one of those guys like a lot of these athletes today that go around with their nose in the air and won't talk to the common man. He was different. He, he played cards. He played poker with the guys he used to go across the street to. And everybody, he was a big star by then already in 1963. So he was just like innately a, just a good guy who yes. happened to be an athlete. He happened to be a super athlete. Yeah, he was the heir apparent. Say. He had the heir apparent. He was the heir apparent left field to Ted Williams. 
Of course, he was always being compared to Ted Williams, but he, he, had, he had a knack of taking all those comparisons. Uh, he knew darn well he was never going to live up to Ted Williams, but he didn't let that bother him. He ended up being one of the greatest players in the history of baseball, Cobb. Hell of Hall of Famer and also. And did he so graduate like, from Merrimack with Yeah, you? he did. It was either 1966 or 1967 he graduated from Merrimack. I graduated in 65. Two years later, he graduated from Merrimack. So um, that's kind of a very quick history of what I... But when I was young, especially living in Maine... Yeah, what kind of kid were you? Well, we used to do... It's interesting. Uh, we used to do crazy things, okay? I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of kids, a lot of young kids, and we did... We didn't Paint have a all... picture for us, though. Maine, what is it like with a lot of kids? Is all it right. a block like here in Chicago? Because a lot of no. people that are listening, that's what I mean. It's no, not it's, the same, uh, so it, it's, what did uh, it look like? I think it was more... Even in the city, we were in the city, but it was a... It had that suburban feel to it, you know, it would be like a street and uh, it was middle to low income. The houses were not that great, but it was it was nice. You yeah. Know? But there were a lot of kids, unlike today, you walk that neighborhood now, you're not going to find all these kids running through the streets. We weren't nasty or gangs or anything, but we did some crazy stuff, you know. <laughs> the winters were vicious, okay. If you think we have cold weather here and snow, this is nothing compared to what I went through in grammar school going to class and going to, we every everybody had to walk to I was just going to say are you going to tell us the walk through two miles in the snow up well, to your way stories had, nobody went in cars in those days nobody had cars my dad had his car and but they used those cars to go to work so if you were below the age of 18 no matter where you went in Bitterford, Maine whether it was the shop or everybody walked okay nobody rode nobody had buses and cars so I used to go to a school fortunately for me the school was only about two blocks away from my mm -hmm. house but we used to have so many bad winters and so much snow that it was common for us in a typical winter, every week or every other week, we'd have two or three days off of school. Almost every week. Like sometimes it would be Monday and Tuesday, then three days later we'd have another storm. So we'd have Friday and Thursday off every week. But we were used to it and we didn't have all this technology. So we used to find out by way of either telephone or here's what they used to do used to contact the fire department and the fire department used to take the big bells and if they rel yeah like almost week we would know a tornado if they sound. rang if they rang according to a certain sequence it meant schools off okay <laughs> but you will listen to the if, but if it not if that you had there were two two kinds of signals one signal meant schools in the other signal schools out and we're all this and once we knew that that bell meant meant in school is out instead of staying home when it was five below Within 10 minutes, we were all out in the street. <laughs> Doing what? We were Building out in the igloos. Playing, we played soccer in the street. My feet, when I, when I used to get home, my feet was frozen solid. You know what my mom used to do? She says, I'll show you a trick where you can warm up your feet even though you almost had frostbite. There's nothing else we can do but this. She'd open up the oven door and she'd put the temperature down 200, 200 degrees in the oven, okay? And she'd take my, take my feet and put my feet on one of the platforms. In the, and that's how I'd thaw, thaw out my feet. <laughs> And you know what it is when your feet are frozen and they thaw, it feels like a billion needles sticking yeah, your toes. Yeah, it's really, and you're oh. so tender. Then she'd come over and she'd say, see, I told you, you're going to do this again? No, no. And the next day we'd do it right again, you right? we do it again. Here we go, back in the oven. But we used to do crazy things like build these humongous, some of the forts we used to bring with this ice and snow, if engineers could see that today, they'd give <laughs> us an award. 
unbelievable castles and were there tree forts back in the day i mean getting out of the snow we we take seen that you have what about tree forts they were they were kind of a little bit big we didn't mess around too much in the summer in the summer we used to have rock fights those were good oh rock fights because in the winter there was no snow we couldn't engage see what usually happened was there were two bunches of two bunch of kids okay this bunch used to hang out together our bunch used to hang and we didn't like each other so during the winter, we'd have snowball fights and wreck each other's forts. We'd raid each other's forts. It's like a movie. It's like a Hollywood film. But in the summer, there was no snow. So we'd get, okay, you want it to want? Bang, bang. Rocks would be flying, okay? And one day, I threw a rock at a kid. Were you I'd, playing stickball or wiffleball or anything like that? We, play, we played all those games, but sometimes we wanted to break the monotony. And sometimes we played three baseball games a day, you know, in the morning, afternoon, at night. Well, we used to do nasty things like throw rocks at one another. One time I missed this kid and then the rock hit this tree and it bounced like it was a rubber, a piece of rubber on the ground. And that, that rock went right through this lady's window. Oh. Right through this lady's window, okay? She was so ticked. She came out, she was gonna kill me. So my mother- <laughs> Walked you back down to well, her. He, well, here's the thing. In those days, do you ever hear the expression, it takes a village? Yes. You could never get away with anything in that neighborhood because Everybody, the next door neighbor, the lady, the guy across the street, if you did something wrong, you were discovered and boom, mom knew it within five minutes. Because everybody reported everything to everybody, okay? No, but you couldn't hide anything. It's a good system though. And in the summer, we used to have the habit of, uh, we, when we were hungry and, and running around the streets, we'd see this lady with the, the apple tree and we'd go next door, this lady with the cherry tree. We'd steal the tread cherries and we'd steal apples. <laughs> And eat, we'd sit on the curb and eat this it sounded stuff. like you were a little bit of a, a rhubarb. Bunch of we'd steal rhubarb right off the ground and peel it and eat it right there on the curb, sitting down. And then once in a while, we'd get the cops called on us, and the cops would, all right, what'd you guys do this time? Then when they realized it was malicious, it was mischief and not, not a felony, they'd say, okay, don't do this. And they, they leave, you know, they leave. But at, once a week, the cops would come by. I can state. see why you didn't want to leave Maine. It was, it was hysterical. Sounds like you had a lot of freedoms there as a kid. I also got beat up a couple of times because uh, we had this hoodlum on the street who was like a bully. And uh, if you didn't do what he wanted, like, for example, he set up a boxing ring one time. And he said, we're all going to box this afternoon. I'm going to pair you up. He says, you, Grenier, you're my partner. I said, are you kidding me? You're twice as big as I am. He says, no, you're human. So we get in the ring, of course, bang, I get smacked. I go home, my nose is bleeding, my, my lips are bleeding. My mother says, what happened to you? That bully over there smacked me. So, And when my dad, you couldn't get me sympathy for my dad, you know? Like if he came home and he saw me with a bloody nose, he would never dare ask me. I was gonna say, he probably thought you deserved it. Yeah, well, how'd you do that? Uh, you know, the guy in the cross the street smacked me in the mouth. Oh, okay. Defend yourself. <laughs> so, never could get sympathy from him. Mom, a little sympathy, but not that. Now, you, you said know. your brothers were younger. Were they part of this pack, too? No. They, see, they grew up, by the time they were my age, uh, living in, they, they, were, they were in Massachusetts. Okay, you, know? you had already so moved. So, it was a different neighborhood and a different atmosphere in Massachusetts. Completely different lifestyle. Yeah, that's like I just said. You were, didn't want to leave Maine. Yeah, so... When I went to Lawrence High School, by the way, Lawrence High School, when I was there, unlike today, Lawrence High School was a great school. How, how, how many kids would you guess were there then? At, at Lawrence, the student body was about 2,400. Oh, big. Big really co-ed. Big. Uh, very strict, far stricter than we were. I had to go to school. In, this is a lot. Uniforms? We had not only uniforms. I, I had to wear a suit, a shirt and tie, and a jacket every day. Oh, every at day. a public school And then. the girls had a strict dress code too. God forbid they found you in the hall between classes. 
I mean, they give you, they, they haul you into the main office and give you the third degree. Explain to us why you're not in school. The bell rings, you got four minutes to go to class. What are you doing in the hall? Because I remember there were days in Lawrence High School when I had to go to class. And if I happened to be in the hall because I was sent for a message or something, there was nobody, nobody in those halls. Unlike here, where you'll find 40 or 50 kids roaming around. Doing they're not roaming. Like, they're on their way someplace, yeah, brother. Yeah. No, they're not on their way. They're roaming, okay? <laughs> they're, they're more like vagabonds, okay? <laughs> they're like vagabonds. Well, to make a long story short, Lawrence High School today, first of all, there are three schools. Mm -hmm. you, you get the school of uh, the traditional, and you got the tech school. I think they've got three major buildings now. But the problem is, uh, today, unlike in those days, uh, they, because of ethnic changes, demographic changes, and crime, and drugs and Florence is a completely different city than mm. it was and uh, a lot that's of why, our cities you know just yeah, that's why I, get, I lend a lot of support every chance I get I send funds to uh, Lazarus house because they serve thousands of people in Lawrence now that people who need a place to stay food clinical assistance medical assistance counseling career counseling stuff so it's a massive uh, massive operation if it wasn't for Lazarus House in Massachusetts right now, which is a private organization, the state and the city would be in dire straits to get enough funds to service people in Massachusetts, people who are poor in Lawrence. I'm talking about Lawrence. It's, it's complete. When I was there, Lawrence was, thrive, was a thriving city. Mm -hmm. And when I left, that's when things began to change. You know, uh, the economy deteriorated and you had a big, big demographic change. Uh, White people began to leave like crazy, and you have all sorts of... Now, if you go to St. Patrick's Church, St. Patrick's Church in South Lawrence, you get... Looks a lot different than it well, did you back get, then. Well, you get very few Irishmen now. What you get is Vietnamese, Cambodians, Puerto Ricans, Dominican Republic people, right, African Americans, right. Hispanics. Um, not saying much that's more, wrong. I'm yeah, I'm no, much I'm more saying, diverse. Totally I'm, different than what it was when you were yeah, there. Yeah, so they grew up in a completely different atmosphere. They didn't... They didn't, they didn't have a chance to engage in some of the baloney oh. that I engaged with. Uh, they came away <laughs> the with- The mischief. They came away with far few scars, you know, than I did. I used to come home sometimes with brutal problems with my, my hand or my face or my knees, my shins, <laughs> and frozen feet. All right, brother, let's transition to right. um, how you knew, you just said where you went to college. When was it that you knew or did you have a job first? How did you know that you wanted no. to be a brother? I was a, I was a senior at Merrimack, and in the winter months or fall, I was beginning to think, what am I going to do now? I'm going to graduate in a few months. What do I want to do with my life? So I was thinking and thinking and thinking, and I, and I said to myself, you know, my best friend uh, at, at Merrimack had, a, had an uncle who was a marriage brother, Richie Rancourt, who was, who was teaching at Central Catholic at the time. So I said, you know, uh, could you make a, could you figure out how to point where I can speak? Billy Graduate was his name. I said, Billy, could you see if you can get your uncle to, if he has time, I'd like to speak to him about what the Marist Brothers do, who they are. So he came to the house. We talked for about an hour. He told me what the Marist Brothers were all about and what they were doing across the country and the traditions. And so I said, I'd get back to him, you know, and, uh, I thought about it for a few months, and uh, I made the decision. And uh, Christmas Eve, I said to my mom and dad, I said, uh, would you please take a seat? And uh, we were about to leave the next day to go to Maine to visit with the relatives for the for Christmas? For Christmas Day. So I said, uh, you know, 
graduation's coming up in a few months, um, and I think I've made a decision as to what I want to do. Also, my dad says, what is that? You're going to go to the Army? You're going to go to graduates? What do you want to do? I said, well, I'm going to think I'm going to join the Marist Brothers. And they sat there for a good 30 seconds, not a word. Stunned. The jaw went down. They said, okay, let's could we discuss this the next day. I said, well, there's nothing to discuss. I mean, I just told you what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to do. You know, so they said, okay. They very, were very deliberate. They were, well, they were very, I knew they'd, they'd be uh, a little apprehensive, but I knew they'd be supportive. Why? Why would you, what was their apprehension? Just that it was a... Well, you know, it, it's, you're talking about a transition period in the church. Yeah. And you're talking about mid-60s now. Mm-hmm. With all the changes, you know, you, you had the Second Vatican Council, you had the major changes in the church, yeah. and my, my dad was thinking, we just put you through, we, we helped put you, spend all this <laughs> tuition money to, to go to Marymount and get this degree. Uh, he might, he's probably thinking in the back of his mind, he's going to go into a field and be, get a profession and you're going to be a business, whatever. And I said, no. And I, I said, I, I love economics. I know, I know what I'm I know what I want to do. I want to teach economics. I loved it. So he says, okay. So what I did was once that graduation was over, about two weeks later, three weeks later, I had to enroll in the novitiate. Novitiate, it was in Tanksboro, Mass. Okay. So Novi- wasn't, Novi- how far was that from? About Florence. 40 minute drive. Okay. So not bad. Now novitiate. And you moved there. Yeah. It was like, it was like a year long boot camp. I don't know if you've ever had, believe me, I'm not exaggerating when I say the novitiate, which is a canonical requirement, okay? Mm-hmm. It's not like it is today. <laughs> it's, believe me, we were tw- there were 24 of us, I believe. And it was intense daily, 24, it was like a, it was like a, being in, ch- a drill, our, our brother who was in charge was like a drill instructor. He was responsible for putting us through intense physical, educational, spiritual, and canonical education so we'd be prepared to take first profession, first vows. It takes a whole year. So that's where I was for a year, and we took vows. I took first profession in 1966, and uh, we've had a tradition of having temporary vows for five years, and when you take it at the fifth time, it's permanent, you know? So I repeated my profession, uh, and I took final profession in 1971, you know, so... Uh, so that's that's what happened. That, so 1971, that, where did you go? Because now you're a, you're well, able to do all of these things, and you wanted to teach. So well, did actually, you stay? I, so actually, I was sent. I was sent to Poughkeepsie in 1967, 66, 67, right after I took profession to teach at Our Lady of Lords High School. Yeah, I was going to say Lords. That's not too yeah, far so from Yeah, so I was there for three years, and it wasn't until two years later, uh, four years later, that I took final profession. See. You gotta distinguish profession from your position or your job. You you can be temporarily professed and then be at a school long before you take permanent profession because there are two different sequences mm-hmm. there. So I was teaching at Lords. I taught at Lords for three years. Then in 1969, I was transferred to Maris. Maris, Chicago. Right. And it's 1971 that I took final profession, and I took it right here. There was a ceremony right here in our chapel in 1971. Wow. Yeah. So um, I also celebrated my 25th anniversary in our chapel here, and whenever that was, 25 years later. I was in the 80s, well, early 90s, something like that. So uh, So what what were you teaching when you taught at Lourdes? 
Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm laughing because we had a tradition in those days. Uh, since I was a rookie, who wouldn't believe this? Any teacher being hired at Marist High School right now, if you told him or her, you gave him my schedule when I was a rookie, they'd walk out of there and say, bye-bye, I'm going somewhere else. Here's what they used to do. My, my degree was in economics, okay? Mm -hmm. So they said, since you're a rookie, and we have a tradition of doing this, everything at school, both in the house, the residence was right next to the school. We had a community of about 16 people. Any job in the house that is left over after the other jobs have been divvied out, same thing with school, you do. So here's your schedule. You will teach history, economics, general science, religion, okay? And you will have cross country, the youth group, and the whole, this is what you're gonna, I said, excuse me, but uh, do you, can I sleep at some point? <laughs> So they did said, you have to cook for yourself now, or did hold, someone now, cook hold, for now, you? Hold on. So now I go to the house. The director of the house says, okay, Rich, uh, your job this year, one of your jobs will be, and this, is, this was bizarre, you will answer the phone every time it rings and you will make sure that the person that the phone call us for gets that phone call. So he says, here's the system. Here's the first floor rooms, here's the second floor rooms. So like eight rooms or nine rooms, first floor, another eight or nine, the top floor, all right? So, <laughs> I know where this is going. Listen to this, there was a phone on the second floor and a phone on the first floor. So when the phone rings, you answer it, and if it's a person who's needed but is on the first floor, you will press one on the buzzer. If it's a person who's on the second floor that is needed, you're gonna, you're gonna hit the buzzer twice. Then whoever comes to the phone, you tell him who wants to be on the phone. So. Every time it rang in that house, I was the only one to answer it. Now you're gonna say, well, how difficult is that? Here's what, I, here's what I'm getting at. Here's why it's difficult. <laughs> I was at night many times trying to prepare class. I couldn't do it because every 10 minutes the phone would ring. I'd have to run to the phone, get the person it was for, make sure he got on the phone. And this went on like for three hours. Every five, 10 minutes, the phone would ring. How long did you have to do that job? All year, all year. That's because you were the rookie? Yes. And then I had other jobs to do in school that you will not believe. I don't know how I got through my first year of teaching because there were nights when I tried to, I tried to prepare for class and I'd say to myself, all oh, these two classes are set. Now what am I gonna do about these other three yeah. classes? You Especially know? if you had all those different topics different preps, or different, different contents. Now, I'm saying now it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm exhausted and I'm trying to fit. It was a nightmare. But it was fun in the sense that we got through it we got through it, and the next day, or the next year, I was no longer looking. I, the next guy that came in who was a rookie, I said, boy, are you going to be surprised. <laughs> and I, it was You're going to have this great job. It's called telephone operator. It's a breeze. It's super easy. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that you I lost, set him up. I lost a ton of weight that year because of all the... Plus, I was cross-country coach. We were traveling all over the place coaching cross-country. Uh, I was an assistant, and... Uh, it was, it was, and then we had like, uh, we had four or five very elderly, three or four very elderly brothers living with us who were retired. And some of them were the old school. They came to this country like at the turn of the century, okay? It was like 1895, 1900. They were in their 80s, approaching 90. And they were old school in the sense that uh, a lot of things we did as young brothers, they just didn't accept, they didn't understand that. And they were demanding, you know, they were sarcastic, some of them were demanding. You'd be doing something like uh, cleaning something or painting something, 
they'd come by and they'd be speaking in French, but they didn't know I could understand French. They would make a sarcastic remark, you know, and I would turn around and look at them as if this, I heard what you said, you know, but I would laugh like it was hysterical. Did so, you get in trouble because of that? No. I got in trouble once or twice for doing other things because uh, we, used, we had a director. Every community in those days had a director, and you had some very strict... It wasn't like today. There's much looser in the communities now because the communities are smaller and there are all sorts of individual circumstances. But back when I joined... The, by the way, I was one of the few people who joined after college. Most of the time in those days, people joined the brothers after high school, and the Marist brothers put you to college. But I, I went to college and then Became, I applied. So mm-hmm. they loved it because that meant they saved all this money. They didn't have to put me through college. So as a matter of fact, they had all sorts of crazy names they called me because I skipped all that stuff. And they gave me, a, they made me a marriage brother like that, you know, after I finished that year of, that canonical year. We're a little more advanced. Yeah. So I spent three years at, at, at Lourdes and... Uh, then when, you came to Chicago. Came to Chicago in 1969. So tell us about that. Well, when I arrived in Chicago, and uh, I had just finished my course of studies uh, that summer at Notre Dame, and I was. Uh, What'd you study there? I went. I got a master's degree in economics. So, met some interesting people over there too. Unbelievable. And one, one of my one of the people I you was know on, I went to St. Mary's. Probably. I know right next door. One of my uh, classmates there was was Tom Gatewood. Uh, the, the greatest receiver Notre Dame ever had uh, before Tim Brown. He was uh, Joe Theismann. Yeah. He was Tom Gatewood, who was uh, Joe Theismann's favorite receiver. What, Joe, what Tom Gatewood did for a kid, kid here, let me tell you the story very quickly. Um, I came to Chicago once during the course of that summer, and for one day I wanted to get some rest. So I, that Sunday afternoon, uh, after I got some R&R, uh, a friend was picking me up at the main office to go back to Notre Dame, and I, one of our kids was in a wheelchair. I noticed, and I said, Terry, what's wrong with you? He says, I don't know. There's, I'm getting worried. I, there's something with my legs. I can't walk, and we're trying, they're trying to figure out what's going on. So I said, uh, well, I'm getting ready to go back to Notre Dame, uh, where I'm, I'm going to be there for the next couple of months. Uh, can I bring you anything from Notre Dame? Well, he says, I would love to have an autographed picture of... Uh, one of the football players, I said, well, what would Tom Gatewood do? You've got to be kidding me. Everybody knew Tom Gatewood goes, I said, can you do it? I says, yeah. So I go back. Monday morning, we're in class. And after class, I mentioned, I said, Tom, could you come over here for a second? Do you have a couple of minutes? He said, sure. Real nice guy. I said, Tom, you know, there's a kid at school where I am in Chicago, and I've got to go back to teach there in the fall. He's having difficulty. He's despondent, and he's discouraged. He's in a wheelchair. He says, could you get a picture of yourself and autograph it? He says, live it to me. I'll do more than that. I said, what do you mean? He says, you'll see. So I go eat lunch. And after lunch, I start walking around the stadium for my walk. You know? I hear, bing, bing, a horn. I turn and the car pulls up next to me. Out comes Tom Gate when he's got this big, large manila envelope. He says, here, bring that to your friend. I said, what's in here? He says, check it out. So I open the envelope. There was a big... To this day, I've, I have difficulty telling that story because his friend, it hit me right here. Yeah, you can it, tell you're getting worked up. He, he, he had a big, big picture of himself, the autograph, plus he inserted a letter. That he wrote. Personal letter to this kid, you know, about, and it wasn't one of those crazy letters like, you know, rah-rah thing where you got to, he said, look, 
I was injured very severely, uh, and this is what happened to me, but I couldn't play in the Cotton Bowl. You gotta listen to your doctors. You gotta do this and that. So I couldn't believe it. I said, this is incredible. So I called his dad the next morning, uh, the next time I got to Chicago, and I, miss, I said, Mr. Whalen, you gotta come over here and pick this up for Terry. So Mr. Whalen comes in before he goes to work, and, and Mr. Whalen was in tears reading this thing. So, what a great story. So, I mean, it was incredible. So, it, it, I mean, I, that, I had that letter for a long I made a copy of it, and I had that in my possession for a long time. And, uh, but fortunately, this kid got better, mm-hmm. and he was able to get out of whatever bothered him. But I, I never forgot Tom Gatewood for that. Here's a guy, he's very busy. Yeah, took he takes, the time. He takes time, mm-hmm. goes to the... He could have taken two seconds, mm-hmm. just grab the... That's the second person who was athletically talented in this podcast that you've mentioned, yeah. Carl Usermski, and now... Here's, here's a guy who takes the time, writes a nice letter, gets all this stuff prepared, then goes out and looks for me. Yeah. He actually it, took the time. It, it's me. kind, you know? You know yeah. It's something that, that, so that's I never part forgot of the that. memory so that you... Whenever exactly. I have, whenever I have a chance to talk about Tom Gatewood, I have glowing stories to talk about Tom Gatewood. Yeah, well, Last time you? I saw him, he was interviewed on TV about five, six, five, six months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, he was on TV. He's old now. He's my age. Has he been on any podcasts? You know, I'm always promoting the podcast. Don't laugh, brother. <laughs> All right, let's get back to when you first got here. So tell us some of the things you've done. We don't have to go through the beginning years, but tell us, so you were a teacher first. When did you leave the classroom? All right. Um, in the fall of 2002. Uh, my last year of teaching was 2002, 2003. Okay, that's, so at the end of the Yeah, spring, because when I was here in the 90s, you were teaching. Yeah, so, and the reason I left, there were a number of reasons, but I was getting to the point where I was losing my creative juices, and, it, and you know, and, and you don't want to go into a classroom with a bad attitude, you know, like an old man, and take it out. You know what I'm saying? No, I know, I know what you're saying. I can read, so I, I, for example, I can never understand how athletes push the envelope, and they keep playing when beyond the point where they can, and they end up. They need to know they, they just begin, when to step away. They're in a bad mood all the time, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they, you got, you got to know when you step Same away. Same thing so, in teaching. So I, I went to, I said, Larry, look, Larry was, was principal. Uh, yep. He came in, what, 19... Uh, he was here right before I left, yeah. and I left in 2001. Yeah, so I said, Larry, look, um, I, I, I want to step out of the classroom, but if it's possible, I'd like to stay at Maris in some capacity. He said, yeah, we can do that, so... In those days, in the early 2000s, I was doing a lot of stuff that I'm not doing now. I was substitutions. And anytime, I was like a utility infielder. Mm-hmm. So I was running all over the building. It's always something. Almost always, back to your days at Lords when you were yeah. doing all those crazy there things. Was, I was using parking <laughs> Jack lot. of all I was, trades. I was doing parking lot duty. I was doing this. I was doing that. Doing errands. I remember when you were at the parking lot. That was legendary times. And, uh, so... So, and, but lately, it's I've been assigned to that science wing. Because, uh, they needed somebody to supervise that area, and those back doors there were they're vulnerable. You know, it's out of the. If any intruder comes in, that's where they're going to go because it's those two by the by the uh, tower. Yeah. That that's where it's vulnerable uh, because it's or, quiet. Or you're just we're dealing with teenage kids, and there's a lot of doors over there. So anytime yeah. there's a door, and there's a teenager, and there's a car yeah. on the other side of the door, you yeah. might want to be able to leave and go yeah. take a so, break from school. So I, enjoy, I, I, I mean, I really enjoy what I'm doing, even though I'm not, even though I'm not in the classroom, because I get during the day I get to interact with a lot of staff and students. Mm-hmm, and, you uh, definitely do. I like the time that I'm free to go all these athletic events. You know, support as many kids as possible. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, 
But right now I'm taking a little break from bus trips because <laughs> combination of, uh, you know, you got to be careful with this pandemic. I don't, yeah, yeah, don't want to be stuck in buses too right, much. Right, with so. too many people. Did you coach? You talked about your early days coaching. Did you coach here at all or did you yeah. assistant coach? Cross what did you country, do? Cross country, track, basketball, and football. Okay. Those four. Not yep. at the same time, though. No. I heard he used to, like, in the locker rooms, give some pretty legendary speeches to wrap the boys up back in the day. He might have even sang a couple of uh, songs. Yeah, yeah. We, Wasn't there a traditional song you'd always yeah, sing? Yeah, yeah, we had this something. Hey, Lottie, Lottie, was it something like that? We used to do it after wins. We, in those days, we used to do it a lot because I remember those days, I was an assistant on teams that were extremely... Matter of fact, I was an assistant when Dawzak was coaching. Ron Dawzak was on a team with Jimmy Pico and a bunch of great players. They were, when they were freshmen and sophomores, they only lost one game in two years and won wow. two conference championships. Wow. And the combination of Dawzak to Pico was devastating. It would be like saying, you know, Direct Brady tech. to Gronkowski. It was those <laughs> easy kids, with those, the those, New England reference. Those kids lost one game in two years as freshmen and sophomores. Wow. They won two consecutive conference wow. championships. So I used to coach the wide receivers and defensive backs, and Joe Nzinga for a while was a, mm-hmm. a coach also. Yeah. And uh, a couple of other guys who are no longer here. Randy Coe was part of our coaching staff through lower levels for a while. And coaching with those guys, some of it was absolutely hysterical. <laughs> there, were, there, were stuff, there was stuff that used to happen where... Remember, we don't have the seven second delay, some of these stories. Yeah, yeah. before practice was especially uh, hysterical. Fun? We'd get together as a coaching staff and exchange stories of what, what happened the day before or something. And there's, I mean, the kids would look at us laughing like fools at doing warm up. They could never figure out what we were talking about, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So much fun, right? Yeah. That's why, you, that's why, what makes Maris special. I'm sure that those players, too, remember a lot of those things that you're referring to or even those. Jimmy, Jimmy Pico, who now is part of that Pico family that owns the, uh, you know, they, that company that makes a lot of gear for us. Marathon Sports. Marathon yeah. Sports, yeah. Little, oh, we just plugged the plug them here on the podcast. Jimmy getting... was one of the greatest athletes we ever saw. Yep. He was mm-hmm. a little shrimp, but he was really good, okay? That kid, <laughs> good was, guy. That kid was really He's good. He's still a good guy, grown and, man. Uh, he had games. Uh, I remember one time when he was a senior, we beat Rice in the last second. It must have been cast of 10,000 people all over that field at Rice. 95 degrees out. Dawzak and Pico connected on a pass. It's one of the greatest plays I've ever seen in my life. High school, high school level. Unbelievable. We nipped him with 10 seconds on the clock. We beat him by two or three. Jimmy Jimmy Nudera was coaching those days. He was here for about three yeah. or four years before we went to another coaching staff. Yeah. But yeah, those were great days. And uh, I'll never forget some of the characters that I worked with at the upper level, like. Mike Fershaw. <laughs> yep, Mike Fershaw. Great was, science teacher. He was yeah. a psycho case, that guy. He I mean, was not a psycho he case. Was, he was lo- maybe he was a little passionate about his, oh, his coaching. Oh, mackerel. In the locker room, sometimes I sat there and marveled at the the the, the, the array of, of, of stuff we used to come up with. That Got I can't, the boys ready to go. They were winning. That I can't repeat right now. That's but right. Unbelievable. What stays, what happens in the locker room stays in the <laughs> locker room. Especially when you're teaching it or coaching yeah. it. I had a few moments myself, which I was, and I must say, I was hoping Steph would stay in the locker room too. <laughs> they have so far so good. Nobody's, so far so nobody's good. told, unless you go to Franklin's at the bar, and then all of a sudden they come out <laughs> these stories. 
Brother, I said at the beginning of the podcast that we were going to learn some things about you. Now, um, anybody that has been to Maris knows that you are a musician. Well, because somewhat. That's somewhat. You, somewhat a musician yeah. because you play the congas. Right. Some people would say the bongos, and right away you let them know. Well, it's like saying the difference between a trombone and a trumpet. They're two different instruments. Correct. And yeah. I, I, I very much appreciate that you always yeah. correct people. On because bongos no. are those stupid little drums that you put between your knees. They're this big, and they have no harmonic value whatsoever, no personality, and I hate them. And the conga? And the conga. That's, now that is a drum where you can, you can almost make music on those, because you can take a conga drum or two, and the way you hit it, and the way you strike it, uh, you can almost sing a song with them. That's how varied the tones can be and all the way. It's incredible. How did you get exposed to the congas? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I was listening to the radio. About 20 years ago, I was listening to the radio, and this, I love jazz, so this DJ put this music on by Pancho Sanchez and his Latin jazz band. I had never heard this. Well, this music I thought was fantastic, and so... I said, I got to look into this guy. So I went on the internet and I found out this one was one of the greatest. He got all sorts of awards, Grammys, for what he was doing at that time. So I began to listen and I began to buy his stuff. Then I learned, I went to his website and I learned that he had all sorts of instructional stuff to learn his system of drumming. He had tapes and videos and sheet music. So I bought all that stuff. Seriously? And for, and for you about six months. Self taught? So I bought myself. I, I lock myself in various locations around the school and in the house. I go outside on the balcony we, before we had that deck there, before the deck was taken out. So I I, I put the drums all and I and I would look at and I would learn all this Did stuff. Did the other brothers know you were doing this? Oh yeah, they knew because oh, they, they heard it. But <laughs> I, I tried say, to do it because you such said you would go in other places. Yeah, I, I tried to do it in such a way that I didn't bother them. They didn't mind because I didn't want to, you know, cause people to have a heart attack. But. Uh, so I began to, uh, and then I began to get the idea, look, I'm going to buy a music system, and I think I can construct programs where I put the music on and I play with it and entertain that way. Mm -hmm. So I ended up in that first five or six years doing stuff, fundraisers at golf courses. I did stuff at graduations for some of the kids who graduated. They, they invited me over and played the music for them at graduation at home. I did some of that. I went to, I played at... Uh, Bourbon Street before the main groups got on. I played here at school. I did stuff here in the chapel. I did liturgies. As a matter of fact, here's a little known fact. You want to talk about bizarre stuff? Let me tell you this story. Small world. It con it's a, this is in conjunction with the, with, the, with the drumming. In 2010, do you remember a kid here by the name of Joe Ward? Joe Ward was a kid. He was a junior then in 2010. And I wasn't here then. No. Joel was a junior, but he was extremely, I think he still works out at Disney World right now. Fantastic PR guy, very bright. He wanted to do something special in 2010. Whenever we have that mass, the end of the year mass mm -hmm. in May, he says, I want to do something special. So for months and months and months, he went to work. He contacted the Cardinal, Francis George, and 30 to 40 bishops all over the state and in the Midwest and all over the, and priests. He organized a liturgy in May of 2010. In May of 2010. And his brother said, we need a special group of singers. So his brother said, I'll invite 
Carthage College Choir that does our liturgies there. I'll invite them to come over and, and sing. That the mass was on a Friday Friday morning. Okay, so they cleared, they came in from Wisconsin. There were three girls, two boys, and we had residents at that time, a lot of guest rooms. So they stayed with us overnight. Yeah, that so, monastery was really nice. So here's what <clears> they did: they said, "Will you play conga? Would you mind accompanying us? We need percussion." So we're gonna have practice in the gym on Thursday night. We're gonna go back to the brothers' residence, have dinner, play cards, have some fun. Friday morning, I want we want you to join us. I said, "Fine, let's do that." So we went to practice. After practice, they come up. We got some pizza for them. We fed them. We had wine and everything. So, one of those girls was a girl by the name of Lauren Kepler or something like that. She had just graduated from Wisconsin. Nice kid, beautiful. So, we go the Friday morning. We do a little bit. And by the way, that's the same day that at the middle of Mass, they gave me the uh, Marist Educator Award. Oh, In front of the whole nice. student. That was embarrassing. Holy what? crap. In front of all the student body. Well, to make a you long story short. You proud of yourself. We go through the liturgy, right? And everything goes super well. And we say our goodbyes. And those kids go back to Wisconsin. Five months later, I'm walking the hall. And Joe Ward's brother, the guy who had arranged for that, he says, brother, come here. He says, did you see TV last night? Did you see the Miss America contest? I said, no, I don't usually watch those things. Well, you should have watched last night because guess who won Miss America contest last night? Lauren Kepler. The same no girl. Way. The same girl. No way. She was Miss America 2012. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Isn't that unbelievable? Brother. So I'm going down in history as the only person in the history of the Miss America pageant who has ever played congas accompanying Miss America. Another great Another, brother is that, is that story. Is, is that bizarre or what? Now, now, how, how do people that are listening like had you couldn't plan stuff like this? No, you, if you couldn't tried, plan stuff you know? like this. You couldn't live. You couldn't plan some of the stories that you're telling. Anyway, either, if you want to go next time, we have a chance. Google Miss America 2012, and you'll see the story of. And the first name's Lauren, or last name was something with a K, Kepler, or something like that. Okay. What about, what about, what are you doing now with the congas? Where can we see you play the congas? I know you play them here in the cafeteria. Do you ever play them anyplace else? Do you ever, anybody alumni I ask you to at, come I, and play at events? I, I played at, uh, downstairs at Franklin's. Uh, this was a good three years ago. A packed house. Packed, I mean. Fun? Did you enjoy it? Oh, it was, it was the day that Loyola was playing in the champ, one of the championship uh, games. Yeah, and, and for the basketball. They were all there watching it and I was, it was pandemonium in the place when they won that game there. So Sister, fun. what's that name? Sister's name. Oh, Sister, uh, yeah, Sister. They were featuring her on that, one of the reports. Forget so, her name. Yeah, I forgot her she name. She was like their yeah, little yes. chaplain. Yeah, yeah. She so, went with them everywhere. So, I, I played... I, right now, my major problem is since those things are so doggone heavy, and since they're in my room, they're all in my room at <laughs> the apartment there. Yeah, I have my bed and the but drums. But you, you still do bring them here sometimes. Once in I mean, a while. Yeah, once in a but while you do that bring takes, them. That takes effort. Yeah, a lot gotta of effort. Make sure that some of these kiddos help yeah. you. You know, so these anyway, kids uh, are help you. one of these days, uh, I'm gonna have to get rid of those because I won't be able to do it anymore. Carry, to carry them around anymore, so I can easily. I give when I have stuff to give away, like systems or drum. I give them to the band kids here. I give them to the band kids. Oh, they, yeah. they can always use them, you know. So. Okay, brother, another topic I wanted to bring up with you. You are Marist super fan. 
current kids and past kids know that you are at so many sporting events. There's few events that you miss, but now you're kind of getting like, I mean, no one can see you because this is not, um, on YouTube. Like we're not, when this is not a video, this is just audio, but you are wearing the Tom Brady 12 hat. So I know you're a big Tom Brady fan. Oh, big so time, big time, big time sports fan, but Tom Brady has a lot of, um, fingers that have rings. Yeah. You too have fingers yeah. with rings. Explain, yeah. please, to the people yeah. listening. Yeah, people have been uh, very nice. Uh, it started a few years ago. I was going to a lot of volleyball games, and Tom Shurgan was the AD, and the coach agreed. He's doing prayers. He's going to all these games and stuff, and I went with them to the championship game, uh, that overnight trip. With uh, So they gave me a ring. And then the following year, or two years later, the, bo- the softball team won the stage, and I was going to all people's game, Wadurski and all those kids. So they gave me a ring. So then I started, 2015, I went to, so they won a chance, so they gave me a ring. Then Vitovic, I went to all these, and I went to all the championship games and won. Took a lot of bus rides, and they won two in a row, so they gave me a ring. Uh, and then last year, another championship, so they, people gave so me a ring. So how many rings do you have? Well, technically, it's six. Well, it's five, but two, one of them is a double. So they won two years in a row. So instead of one ring, uh, two rings, they made it a back-to-back ring. Very so, nice. So, so uh, it's basically six rings. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny, but... It's nice when you wear them. Well, I like to... Let's put it this way. Um, I think kids who... The kids who achieve, may, not everybody can win a championship, and you're not playing the sports necessarily to win a, a championship. You know, if it comes, I can. That's a bonus, you know. But if you're gonna go all out and work like crazy and win one, then you know I think the kids should get the credit. And I like to. I'm not gonna have a ring that they they're decent enough to give me and then not wear it. That's to me. Yeah. That's not. That's not good. You know. Yeah. So. So I don't wear it to show up. I just wear it because it's an acknowledgement. No, it's a proud, you're proud. Exactly. They, they gave me the ring. I'm going to wear it. I may not wear it every day, but I'm going to wear it. Uh, and I do think that some of the kids that see it probably yeah, think yeah. to themselves, like, hey, I'd like one of those. So it well, is a little bit of an achievement thing, you know? A few years ago, Coach Connolly was just about ready to have practice uh, for their basketball team. Saw me coming down the hall, and I big the, the 2015 ring is immense, okay? It's a beautiful ring. It's like a Super Bowl ring. She said, come over, come over. She says, can I borrow that? I said, Coach, she says, I want to show them what they're working for. So I said, Coach, whatever you do, don't drop this, please. <laughs> she takes the ring and within five seconds drops it right to the floor, okay? I, was, I said, Coach, what did I, just, what did I tell you? <laughs> I said, this better not be broken, Coach, because I'll break you. So that was so funny. No sooner do I say it, boom, it's right on the floor. But, All right, you, you mentioned that you... Um, you know, sometimes you come to the games and you're wearing the rings, but you say the prayer. Yeah. How did the yeah. prayers begin? Like, and why? Um, Many years ago. Yeah, the, a while ago. That yeah, yeah become... that goes back. That goes back a while ago. Somebody, I don't know exactly how it started, but uh, somebody asked me, one of the ADs asked me to do it at a football game. God, it's got to be at least, it's got to be at least 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. In those days, I was not necessarily doing it every week, but then all of a sudden they wanted me to do it every week. So it's been going on for at least 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, I, a, I, and I try to be as original as possible. You know, do uh, you um, craft your prayers, write your prayers, 
um, and keep like a book of your prayers that you have them and you almost like you can sometimes recycle them or do you for each game do you sit you know what's your process there for are certain prayers? because I say that because you are very thoughtful and specific to yeah. I try to do both in moments. one prayer in other words there are certain key thoughts that I want to be standard but then I add to it and subtract from it mm-hmm. depending upon the situation mm-hmm. so but I also have read some great stuff from people so sometimes I quote like I quote uh, uh, Bobby Jones mm-hmm. you know Bobby Jones and, and it applies uh, because I make the transition from his quote which had to do with golf yeah, to life the great Bobby Jones so uh, so I sometimes do that and uh, so it started about 25 30 years ago and I, I compile them and I keep them, but I keep changing things. I get them on computer and I change things around. And yeah, it's definitely become tradition here at Maris to hear your voice connected to the prayer. And you're super classy about the fact that you always recognize the other school. Yeah, that's important, I think. I, I think do. so, too. I think yeah, so, too. I think it's um, not just classy and important, but it's also good for the students because, you know, we know that there are such rivals here. I was never so scared doing that in my life as when they asked me about five, six years to do it at Soldier Field. Oh wow! Right at right at halftime, right at the mid, at midfield before the game, uh, on the big screen mm-hmm. by myself. Mm-hmm. We were playing Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel's here, thousands of fans. Maris, Maris people are here, thousands of fans. So the guy, Mr. Kelly, called me up through the East's brother. Would you mind doing the prayer uh, before the game, the invocation? Before, I said, are you sure? I said, sure. I go over there, man, and it's like, the guy on the PA since announces me, and I'm, I'm saying, oh, geez. And what you don't realize, because you don't see it, if you're watching TV, what you see is the person and then the big screen. You don't see the guy in the, with the camera who's right in your face taking this, you know? Oh, yeah, Right so, in your face. So a intimidating. I, I'm, do, I'm doing the prayer, and, and the guy's running, I said, Talk about my heart pounding. Yeah. I said, if I screw up in front of all these people, so everything turned. Then I ended up by saying, God bless Mount Carmel, God bless Marist High School, and God bless the USA. Well, they all went freaking nuts. So is that how that was born? That's what I was going to ask no, you. I Where was to, the God bless the USA? When did that come did in that, there? Because you always to, end that. Yeah, I used to do that before, but the Mount Carmel people loved it because I went like this. God bless Mount Carmel. <laughs> With the finger point. Man, then the student body went nuts, and uh, so. But that was one of the most nerve-wracking prayers because there was a good minute there that I had it. And it was, this guy's in your face and you're on the big screen for Pete's sake. And people are taking cool. videos and stuff. And I said, if I if I mess this up, I'll never live Well, it you didn't mess it up and you typically never mess it up. I've never heard you mess it up. If anything, you, you hit uh, it out of the park. Thanks, um, thanks. You also, brother, take really good care of yourself, it seems to be. I hope you're so. You're a mover. They always say, you know, you don't move it, you lose it with the body. And as we all are in the aging process, no matter what decade we're in, you are a big walker. And you can often be seen walking around the school, inside the school. How many steps do you get a day? Depends. It varies. Sometimes I do a lot of reading and I take a break and I walk. But uh, when the summer hits is when I do a lot of hard workouts because I have more time. See, I don't want to take too much longer. I mean, when I break from that... Section. Post I wanna, where I wanna, you are I, in the I science be, wing. Yeah, you're working, be, so you can I don't want to be away from there correct. too long. Yeah. You know, five, ten minutes at a time, and that's it. Yep, yep. Um, but when I, it, it, when we have a vacation or, or the summer, I'm here for about an hour and a half every day doing a workout, quick, quick pace, and I find that really helps. Uh, 
keep the weight down and the sugar levels down. Yeah. And so things that we all have to worry about as we continue to yeah, get this, older. This, uh, it's posture too, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, you know, I try to avoid uh, a lot of stuff that I used to love to eat. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't anymore. Like I love pizza, but that's nasty for you if you eat too much of it. Yeah. Too much carbos. The thing with the thing with uh, pizza is, it's like you can't ever have just a little bit nah, of pizza. Man. That's what you notice. Because, like there's no little. There's either none or a lot. And right now, what I would love to get my teeth into, which I haven't in about five years, is a big, big lasagna. Oh, did you have a favorite lasagna place in Chicago oh, that you used to go to? It, the cook at school when we lived in the house used to make a phenomenal lasagna. Mm. But even if he, see, I can't eat all that stuff because it's yeah, so just heavy. Like, oh, it's so just, heavy that you, you can have a couple bites. The, the, sugar, but it the is. sugar spikes up like you want oh, to leave, you know? Yeah. So, but I cheat once in a while, but I cheat. It's a small cheat, not a big cheat. Yeah, it's you know? a couple bites. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the other day I cheated. I had two slices of, of pizza over the basketball game, so can't eat pizza now for the rest of the month yeah <laughs> so. all right brother we're coming to the end of our podcast at the end of the podcast i always like to do something called red hawks want to know so this is the rapid fire and i'm going to say something to you and you're just gonna give me the the first thing that pops into your to your mind so i'm going to say because i know you're an avid reader what's one of your favorite books I'm reading one now, right, which is fantastic, Discrimination and Disparities. It's written by Robert Solo, who's a brilliant economist at, uh, at, uh, come on, uh, Stanford. He's written about 20 books. He's a brilliant economist. He's doing a book now on uh, the role that discrimination has played on racial disparities. And he is a guy who does a lot of research. He never says anything unless it's backed up by facts. Mm-hmm. And he is decoupling. He's, he's going a long way to convincingly decoupling discrimination from disparities. It has had an impact on disparities, but nowhere near the impact that people generally can, can think about. Say the title of the book again for people listening. It's called Discrimination and Disparities. Discrimination and Disparities. Okay. Next question. I know you're not supposed to eat them all the time. Favorite dessert? Oh, cheesecake. A favorite kind? Cheesecake. So good. Especially so good. peanut butter chocolate cheesecake. Oh, okay. And the other thing would be anything like this peanut butter chocolate ice cream that he's got over at Franklin's Pie Company. That is to die un- for. Oh, never had it. That never had is it, brother. unbelievable. We'll have to go. Oh. Last question for you, because I know that you are a real big fan of the music. Um, what song could you be heard singing? I was singing it in the gym a couple of weeks ago, karaoke, and uh, unknown to me, a lot of people were listening. And they gave me compliments. I love the Frank Sinatra rendition of. I've got my love to keep me warm. Snow is snowing, you know, stuff. Snow that song there. Snow is snowing. You can do it on the, karaoke. You, can I you give s- us a couple bars of it? Come well, on, you, you have know, a good not, voice, no? No, no, no? I'm, not on, I'm not on podcast. No, you'd have come to talk, on. You know, you'd have to talk to my agent. For oh, okay. All right, Brother Rich, this has been a great conversation. Uh, your memory, your stories, your ability to kind of, kind of captivate the audience. Hope everybody is 
been enjoying it as much as I have. Thank you so much for all the work you do here at Marist. Happy to be here working alongside you. You're You're a legend. You're welcome. And um, look forward to the rest of the... Is this going to be on CNN or what? You never know, brother. (laughs) You never know. Thank you for listening. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Uh